0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at verses 26 through verse 31. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and we'll be looking to the end of the chapters. You're finding your place there in God's Word. I want to remind you of a mission trip opportunity that we have coming up. uh, A trip to Peru with Compassion International. Uh, Many of you have already been on a trip like this. Uh, Many of you have not been. And we're looking for about 10 more people to fill this trip up. It's going to Peru. It's going to the area where we've planted a church. If you've sponsored a Compassion Child, you'll get to meet your child on this trip, which makes it extra special. you get to be a part of evangelism, going into homes, doing home visits, praying with families, encouraging them. It'll be a wonderful time, a wonderful trip. It's May, I believe, 19th through the 27th, 19th through the 27th, but the registration deadline is February 9th. So if you're thinking or praying about this trip, you need to let us know soon. You can contact uh, Brian Rothrock or Pastor Kelly Hughes. They'll get you all the information. But I just want to encourage you, if you have any thought towards that, or maybe your schedule's changed and you're able to go now, and previously you weren't able to go, uh, you need to sign up for this trip. You'll be blessed by it. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Well, this morning, Genesis 1, you'll remember last week as we uh, discussed, really all of chapters 1 through 12, all of, all of Genesis to some degree is about the glory and the majesty of God, the God of all creation. But as we learned last week, all of God's creation is performed with a view towards man. Man. That the creation is all about the glory and majesty of God, but the centerpiece of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, is man. That everything's been building towards man. And this is so critical, because when we started, really we said that the primary question is, where did all this stuff come from, and why does it appear to have order and design. And we found out in the beginning God created. It finds order and design, the God who made it. But importantly, and just as importantly this morning, a second question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is man? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? Or do I even have a purpose? Does my life have meaning? It's a critical question that everybody has to ask themselves at some point or another, and your answer to that question, what is man, has huge implications for your life. You remember David in Psalm 8 said, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you should take thought of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? Remember David as a a shepherd, probably out every night with his sheep, and he would look up at the moon and the stars and the vast expanse of God's creation, and he would say, what am I? In light of all this, who am I? I think David also understood there's a difference between me and those sheep, that there's a dignity given to me that the rest of creation doesn't know what am I, who am I, and he finds an answer, doesn't he? And his answer is found in God. His answer, in fact, is found in Genesis 1. Because what does he say? Yet you've made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you make him to Rule, as we're going to find out this morning, over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you know what I think David knew? I think David knew Genesis chapter 1, because boy, it sure sounds a lot like Genesis 1 right there, doesn't it? You know, David found meaning and purpose and fulfillment in the eternal personal God of all creation. And I'm here to tell you today, with all honesty, with all sincerity, until you have established the infinite reference point of God in your life, you will never know true joy and fulfillment. Until you have established the infinite reference point of God in your life and who He is, As the creator God, you'll never know true joy and fulfillment. Let me give you some examples. Bear with me, a long introduction, but we're going to move, uh, try to bite off a little shorter of a passage this morning because I want to set this up. Brad Pitt, um, several years back, did an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. I want you to hear what he said. This is kind of him assessing life. Listen to what Brad Pitt said. He said, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? He says, if you ask me, I say toss all this. we got to find something else. Because all I know is at this point in time, we're headed for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want that. And the interviewer says, so, so if we're headed towards this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? And Brad Pitt says, hey, man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis right now is on success and personal gain. But then he says, but I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, that's not it. Whether you want to listen to me or not, and I say that to the reader, that's not it. And the interviewer says, but but I'm glad you said it first. People are going to read you're saying that and think. And Pitt says, I know that I'm the guy who's got everything. I know, but I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better. You don't wake up any better because of it. And no one's going to want to hear that. I understand it. I'm sorry that I've got to be the guy to say it, but I'm telling you, that's not it. Wow. Yeah. Well, let me give you another example. Super Bowl weekend. Tom Brady is not playing in the Super Bowl. Amen? Amen? We can praise God for the Tennessee Titans, uh, eliminating him. But he deserves a little press this morning. He's been in every Super Bowl the past three years, so I thought I'd give him a little press. Listen to his perspective. This was years back. He'd already won three championships. But listen what he had to say in this interview. But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. (laughs) I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Powerful. If, you, if you've got a chance to ever see the fullness of that video, it's powerful. He almost says the exact same thing as in the fullness of the interview. He says, all that stuff that I've got doesn't help me sleep any better at night. Same two things. And, and quite honestly, if, if the stuff of this world... If we could find meaning and fulfillment in the stuff of this world, then those two guys ought to be the most fulfilled guys in all the world. If fulfillment came in the finite stuff of this world, those guys ought to be fulfilled. And yet, um, you know, you too had that song, that, that hit not long ago, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And everybody out there searching for meaning, ultimate meaning and purpose. But listen to me, when you cut yourself off from God, when you eliminate God from the picture, you are just left with yourself and the stuff of this world. And whenever you try to find purpose and meaning in the stuff of this world, it's like a dog chasing its tail. And every now and then we may think that we've caught meaning or fulfillment, but sooner or later we come to the realization that we're just sinking our teeth into our own finite selves. And not only are the accomplishments disappointing, but oftentimes they become very painful. And I'm here to tell you today the only place you'll find ultimate meaning and purpose in life is in a personal relationship with the eternal God of all creation. Now that's the kind of the entertainment side of things, but let me give you the intellectuals, because we say, "Well, yeah, those are some goofballs," you know, they're they're just entertainers and football players. Well, let's talk about some people of, of deep intellect, because maybe that's where meaning's found. Listen to a couple of the, a few of these quotes: Wolfgang uh, Johann Wolfgang Van Gogh. I didn't even know who he was. You probably don't know until till two weeks ago. All right, this guy produced some of the earliest writings on evolution. He had a huge influence on Nietzsche. He's described as anti-Christian. He was incredibly wealthy. He was powerful. He was a politician and he was incredibly intelligent. In fact, there's a you may you may know this, there's a statue dedicated to him in Chicago. But listen to what he says. This is kind of his synopsis of life towards the end of his life. He'll say, he says, I'll say nothing against the course of my existence, but at the bottom it has been nothing but pain and burden, and I can affirm that during the whole of my seventy years, seventy-five years, I've not had four weeks of genuine well-being. It is but the perpetual rolling of a rock that must be raised up again forever. Isn't that sad? Now well, listen to Voltaire. Incredibly intelligent philosopher, Voltaire. tried to stamp out Christianity. He was an atheist, professed atheist. Listen to what he said. He said, strike out a few sages, and the crowd of human beings is nothing but a horrible assemblage of unfortunate criminals, and the globe contains nothing but corpses. I tremble to have to complain once more of the being of beings in casting an attentive eye over this terrible picture I wish I had never been born. Mark Twain, who was at best a deist, believed that God created the world, but he had no, God had no real involvement in the affairs of man, railed against religion. Listen to what he says. And this is just a small portion of a much larger quote that's even more depressing than what I'm giving you here. But listen to this. He says, the burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It comes at last the only unpoisoned gift ever had for them. And they vanished from a world where they were of no consequences, where they, they achieved nothing, where there was a mistake and a failure and a foolishness where they have left no sign that they have existed, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Then another myriad takes their place and copies all they did and goes along with the same profitless road and vanishes as they vanish to make room for another and another and a million other myriads to follow the same arid path through the same desert and accomplish what the first myriad and all the myriads that came after it accomplished, nothing. Now doesn't that make you want to get out of bed in the morning? But I'm just telling you, the more I read of this stuff, the more you take atheism out to its logical conclusions, the more you take evolution and Darwinism out to their logical conclusions, you know what they come to? And they will tell you flat out your life is nothing. You are a blob of goo. You are just a biomechanical machine that has impulses like an animal. No meaning. No fulfillment. Now compare that. Let me just give you a few individuals who loved Christ, who had a personal relationship with God. Listen to them. This is at the end of their life. Missionary Adoniram Judson, first missionary to Burma. And by the way, this guy lost everything. He had nothing. In the eyes of the world, he was a failure. He left nothing behind. Listen to what he said. I'm not tired of my work. This is at the end of his life as he is about to die. I'm not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world. Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Wow. John Wesley told his loved ones, the best of all, God is with us. Farewell, farewell. His brother Charles Wesley expressed his peace in saying, this is on his deathbed, I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. Talking about God. With thy likeness. Satisfied. Satisfied. Dr. R.G. Lee may have been one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He was known for his ability to paint these vivid pictures. His powerful preaching was able to bring the invisible to a place of being just in plain sight. Yet when he was dying, he suddenly opened his eyes and he said to his wife, I love this. He said, I see heaven. Oh, I didn't do it justice. I see Jesus. I didn't do him justice. A few hours before entering the homeland, Dwight L. Moody caught a glimpse of the glory that was awaiting him and awakening from sleep. He said, earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There's no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. His son was standing by his bedside and said, no, no, father, you're dreaming. No, said Mr. Moody, I'm not dreaming. I've been within the gates. I've seen the children's faces. A short time elapsed following what seemed to be the death struggle, and he spoke again, this is my triumph. This is my coronation day. It is glorious. And I use these opposite ends of the spectrum to tell you today the difference between nothing and purposelessness is a cutting yourself off from the eternal God of all creation. And in a personal relationship with the God of all creation, we find life, we find meaning, we find purpose, we understand who we are, and we have hope that this world doesn't know. The difference is our understanding of who God is and who he made us to be. So as we look at these brief verses this morning, you know what we're going to learn? We're going to know who created us. And we're going to know who loves us and what he intended us to be, and what he intended us to do. So let's just read this passage, then we're going to make some comments about it. Look with me at verse 26. He said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which is fruit-yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Father, we ask you to bless the study of your word this morning, God, and enliven our hearts and open our eyes to the truth and the principles of this text so that we better understand who you are and who you have created us to be. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now, as we have been seeing, as we've walked through chapter 1, we're learning more and more about who God is. You know, we wouldn't know anything about God unless he chose to reveal himself. He must reveal himself. And what he's revealed himself in here is his word, and we're learning more about God. And one of the first things that we see in verse 26, in fact, right off the bat, we see a very clear and a very important attribute of God, and that is that God is plural, Verse 26, then God said, let us, it sticks out as a sore thumb. You can't miss it. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Three times right there in the very first phrases of this verse, we learn something new about God. And we've, we've seen glimpses of this, haven't we? We've seen that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the deep. And so there's been glimpses of the fact that, that God is plural. But right here, it's fleshed out further. And by the way, the further you go in Scripture, the clearer it becomes. Until the New Testament is most fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. But right here, we learn that God is plural, that in fact, He is three. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And listen to me this morning this is foundational. This is not secondary, this is not tertiary, this is critical, this is foundational revelation. Because if God is not plural, we might be tempted to believe that God created us because he was lonely. We might be tempted to believe that God wanted somebody to commune with, and so he made man. Listen to me, if God creates us because he is lonely, then God has a weakness. And if God has a weakness, then he is no longer God. But what do we learn right here? We learn that God has never been alone. He is eternally loving. He is eternally tender. He's eternally relational. In other words, God didn't create us to fill some kind of void in his life because he was lonely. He has been eternally triune. But then we look down to verse 27 and what do we see? In verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now what sticks out there? In, in verse 26, we got plural. Then all of a sudden now here we switch back to what? The singular. You don't have to be an English major to understand. This. It's very clear. It's very plain in the text. What's going on here? What's wrong? Did God miss out on the grammar class? What happened here? And we know that God is very intentional in what he says, isn't he? Every word is God-breathed, it's perfect, it's an errand, it's per- purposeful, it's intentional. So what do we learn about right here? Well, we learn that while God is plural, he is God in three persons, he is also one. This is amazing. Right here, within the Godhead, God is telling us there is unity in the midst of diversity. Right here, we see the primitive beginnings of one of our, our most foundational doctrines, the doctrine of of the Trinity. And uh, you know, one of the questions I am most frequently asked is Pastor, would you explain the Trinity to me? And listen, every explanation and every analogy that I've ever heard given for the Trinity always falls woefully short. And oftentimes it borders on heresy. We've got to be very careful. See, the world wants us to bring God down to our own level. What I often tell people is if I could explain it to you fully, he wouldn't be that big of a God. Here's what we know. Scripture teaches very clearly that God is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are all co-equal, they are all co-eternal, and they are all God. And yet God also says they are all one in essence. What a powerful, powerful doctrine. And I long ago stopped trying to explain it. And long ago I even stopped trying to fully comprehend it. And I've just decided to worship in the glory of the God that we know who is God three persons, blessed trinity. And now, you know what's so amazing in this? Now, in a triune God, we have somebody to correspond ourselves to. Because out of this plurality, isn't this interesting? God could have let us in on the fact that he's plural earlier in the text, couldn't he have? But he waits to tell us about his triune nature until the point that he comes to create man. And so, out of this triune God, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, aren't we? So, let me give you a few things that we learn about God coming out of this. Number one, we learn that God, that we are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. What does this mean? It means that you and I were created to be a graphic image of the creator, a formal, a visible, and an understandable representation of who God is and what God is like. We reflect the image of God in this world, that in what God is infinitely, we are finitely. And again, we find something that begins to be bigger than we can wrap our minds around. But what we do know is that God says this about no other part of his creation. There's no other aspect of his creation that is said to be made in his image. In fact, in every other part of creation, it's impersonal. Um, It's almost like God is dictating information to us. Let there be light, and it was so. Let there be the earth and the sea, and it was so. Let there be animals, and it was so. But when he comes to man, what does he say? Let us make man in our own image. Do you see the picture there? It would be like if you asked me to tell me, tell me Pastor Chad, chronologically about bringing your son Wyatt home. Well, we, we looked at the room, we established a room, and it was so, and we decided the, the flooring wasn't quite right, so we put flooring down, and it was so, and we didn't like the paint color, and so we, you know, we picked a color, and it was so, and we needed a crib, and it was so. But then, then came the day, and this boy that we had prayed for, and we would longed for, and we loved before he was born, then he arrived. Do you see the difference? that all of a sudden with the creation of man, God gets very personal. There's a personal connection with you and I that he has with no other part of creation. There's personhood here. There is dignity here. Not just for the man, but for both the man and the woman. In verse 27, it says, In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And what do we learn about the woman? That she is an equal of man. And we're learning more and more about who we are through the Godhead and the Trinity. That in the Godhead, there's God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All co-equal, all co-eternal. Now in the man and the woman, we have unity in the midst of diversity. We've got co-equal and co-eternal. Unity in the midst of diversity. Now in chapter 2, we're going to learn what? There's some different roles. We're going to learn in chapter 2, there's an order. But what do we also know about the Trinity? There's different roles. And even within the Trinity, there is order. Do you see what we're seeing here? That when we rightly understand who God is, then we begin to rightly understand who we are and who God made us to be. Before we get into the roles of man and woman, before we look at biblical manhood and womanhood, we've got to worship and appreciate the God who made us. And when we understand who he is, we begin to understand who we are. But whenever you lose or cut yourself off from the eternal, personal, triune God, you will always lose the dignity of men and women. Every person made in the image of God. And it removes all the junk, doesn't it? Because this world will tell you you're only valuable or your value is based on how you look or what you do. But this removes all this stuff, doesn't it? That you're not valuable because of your physical looks. Your value is not based in your earning potential. Your value is not in your job status or your marital status or your IQ. It's not in your physical strength. It's not in the color of your skin. It's not what degree you hold. You are valuable today because you've been made in the image of God. Big or small. From the smallest child that grows in the womb to the oldest patient lying in the nursing home, you have beauty and glory and dignity because God made you in his image. And this has huge implications for our life. You may wonder, why do we hold so dearly to the sanctity of life? This is why. Because that child that grows in the womb is as valuable to the heart of God As the president or any other individual in this world because they're made in the image of God and God loves them and we ought to love them and we ought to protect them (laughs) huge implications but we only know this in as much as we begin to understand who God is and who he made us to be being made in the image of God gives us so much understanding we don't have time to go into all of it this morning But we understand we're made in the image of God. We understand why we are the way we are, aren't we? We, Why are we relational? What's 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 the worst thing you can do to a person? What's the worst punishment you can give them? Put them in isolation. Person will go crazy. Why? We're relational because God is relational. We're made in his image. Why why do we long to communicate in one way, shape, or form? We long to communicate with people, don't we? Not just to be around them, but to communicate with them. Why do we long to communicate? Because God loves to communicate. You can't read the Bible and not see that God speaks over and over again. We serve a God who speaks, and we long to communicate and to speak. Why are we creative? We don't like to just color inside the boxes. We like to design things. We like to personalize things. Why do we do that? Because God is a creative God. And it moves on down to the mind and the intellect and the soul. And as we find out who God is and we understand ourselves, we begin to understand that we have value and meaning and purpose. Not only do we find out who we are, but we found out what he made us to do. And in, in verses 26 and 28, we, we realize that God made us to rule. Listen, God made us to be kings and queens. that's what we were intended to be. The old Puritans used to say that that man was God's vicar, man was God 's vice regent, ruling in the stead of God. that God established us as rulers, as managers. Over that which he created. And he gives that to no other part of creation. You're to rule over it and subdue it. And I believe there's innately, instinctively, in us a desire to rule over the earth. Why do I have a buck hanging on my wall in my office? So I can tell you that buck was big and fast, but I was smarter than him. Why why do we long to do things like climb mountains? Why does anybody sign up to climb Mount Everest? You can't do anything. When you get there, most people die. And you've got men and women signing up, paying big bucks. Why? So that they could point to that mountain and say, I conquered it. Why are we the way we are? Because God has given us a purpose innately and inside of us, to rule. Not only are we made to rule, man is made to multiply. In verse 28, we see it over and over again, but, but verse 28 very clearly, it's a command, be fruitful and multiply. That This is overwhelming. We have the great privilege of bringing forth other image bearers who then go out and continue God's rule on the earth. It's why we spend so much time training up parents because what we're intended to do is bring up children who bear God's image in the world in a, establishes reign over the earth. What a great privilege. And not only that, we see what man is made to worship. In verse 29, then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding, uh, every plant-yielding seed that's on the earth and every tree. And he goes on. That everything we have comes from God. That you don't see cattle out in the field before they start munching on grass. You don't see them... Bend their knees and clap their hands, do you? Thank you, God, for this grass. No, but we as individuals, what do we do? And if we don't, we probably ought to start, by the way. Because we're a people who before we, as I like to say in our house, before we dive in like a bunch of heathens and just start chomping away at food, we're a group of people who do what? We pause. We pause. And we were reminded that we would have nothing apart from the grace of God. And everything that He has given to us, He's supplied for us. As the pinnacle of his creation. Do you see the picture here? In fact, verse 31, he saw that all he made, it was good, it was very good, not just good. Now he says, he sees all of it. He steps back from it and says, it's very good. You have a beautiful picture here. All, all of this has been moving towards the pinnacle and the crown of his creation, which is man who was made to rule and made to worship him and to continue his reign on the earth. It's a powerful picture. And yet, what do we do? We look at the earth and we look at the world and we look at our lives as they are today, and what do we say? Something's gone wrong, right? Because, boy, this is a powerful picture here as we see and We look at man as he was intended to be. And by the way, when I say man, I'm talking about mankind, man, and woman. But we see this, and we say, what happened? And the short answer is that sin happened. See, the picture that we have here in Genesis is a picture of man's innocence. Walking in perfect fellowship with God and with each other as we're going to see in the, in the following weeks. But God, he placed them in a garden. He gave them an opportunity to cultivate that garden, to be kings and queens. And he gave them a choice to obey or disobey. And what will the man and the woman choose? They'll choose to disobey. Isn't this an amazing God who will not force this man and this woman to follow him, but will give them choice? I've often wondered, what did the angels think? God, what are you doing here? I'm going to give them a choice. You're going to give them what? I'm going to give them a choice. And their sin, listen, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. Their sin has infected every one of us. And this world is desperately broken. And the results of this, in this place of fallenness, we went from a place of innocence to a place of fallenness due to the sin of man. And now, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.8, he put all things in subject to him, but now we do not see all things subject to them. We were made to rule, but from Genesis 3 on, we're not ruling. We're running, aren't we? Because all of a sudden, this creation that was perfectly made with man in view, it's all corrupted now. And little things, like little viruses that we're finding out. We are man made in the image of God, but now a virus can take us out. And animals can kill us. And tornadoes can kill us. And earthquakes can kill us. And man was intended to rule. Now he's on the run. He was intended to worship. But now, what do we know? We are naturally inclined to do what? Not to bend the knee, but to rebel. Man now has a heart that's inclined to rebel against God. It's so interesting to me. What do we see in the world? We see that man longs for God, but we don't want his sovereignty, do we? Uh, we, this, This past week with the passing of Kobe Bryant, when these tragedies come, and they are tragic, all of a sudden, what do you see? You see men and women longing for a God who loves them. But at the same time, While their heart wants God, their flesh wants evolution and Darwinism. They don't want anybody telling them how to live. And so here is man in his rebellious state. He has the, we still have the image of God on our lives, don't we? We have enough of the divine in us to know we were made for more. But we're sinful enough that we always seem to rebel against God's sovereignty and his control. And so here we find ourselves in a place of fallenness and in this place of fallenness, we really only have two options. Listen to me this morning. Innocence, sin, fallenness. That's where we all find ourselves. You only have one or two options. You can continue in a state of fallenness and never return to God through faith in his son Jesus. And if you abide in that state of fallenness and you die, the end result is separation from God forever in hell. And we don't like to talk about that, but that's the biblical reality. It's been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Revelation 20.15 tells us, And their names were not found in the book of life, and they were cast into the eternal lake of fire. So we can continue in that ab- fallen state without ever turning back towards God, and the end result is destruction and hell. Or the other option is, is redemption. You see, this is what's so amazing about God's love. Listen, before Adam and Eve ever sinned, he knew they would. And yet he had already decided, I love them so much, I'm going to do whatever it takes to buy them back that I might have a relationship with them forever. And so that I might display my glory in this world. And so that I might display my mercy. And so that I might display my grace. And so in in an unheard of, unthinkable act of love and grace, God sent his one and only son to this earth to die on a cross for our sins because you are still the apple of his eye. Despite all of your sin, despite all of your brokenness, he still loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent his son to die for you. So that today on the basis not of your works because you can never work your way back to God, simply by the basis of faith you might have salvation and redemption and freedom. And you know what you get to do? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you now get to regain some of God's original design. Isn't this awesome? We still have a fallen nature, don't we? And we struggle. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, our eyes are open to our purpose and our meaning and God's design. And he enables us to follow his design. And we get to know joy and purpose and fulfillment. And what else do we get? We get the eternal hope of knowing one day... One day again, we're going to worship as we were made to worship. And one day, Scripture says, we will rule and reign with Christ forever. And as beautiful as this Genesis 1 account is, Scripture indicates that the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth will be far more glorious than that initial creation in Genesis chapter 1. And it's all available to you today because God loves you and has provided a means of salvation through his son, Jesus you want to know purpose and fulfillment find a relationship with the eternal personal God who made you through faith in his son Jesus let me pray for us Father we thank you that you're the God of all creation Lord of heaven and earth you made us God we're fearfully and wonderfully made made in your image the apple of your eye the crown of your creation and yet we're broken and we're sinners sinners and God, you could have just decided to start over. You could have thrown us out, cast us away forever. But we bore your mark, we were yours. And so, in your love and out of your justice, you sent your son to die in our place to bear the punishment. And the wrath that it was ours due to our sin so that we might have a way of life. God, I pray if there's anybody here today, maybe they've been searching for meaning and purpose in the stuff of this world. God, draw them to yourself. Draw them to your love. Draw them to your son, Jesus. I pray that they would turn for their sin and turn towards Christ and know your freedom and your forgiveness and your salvation today. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.